Casino Royale is too much for one James Bond. Join the Casino Royale fun movement. Mr. Bond, I'm Lieutenant Mathis of the Special Police. Peter Sellers is James Bond. These are my credentials. They appear to be in order. Ursula Andress is James Bond. David Niven is James Bond. Woody Allen is James Bond. My, my doctor says I can't have bullets enter my body at any time. <laughs> what if I said I was pregnant? Joanna Pettit is James Bond. Rather warm in here, don't you think? Cool it, Charlie. Casino Royale is too much for one James Bond. Orson Welles is the heaviest heavy of Smirch. Dahlia Lavi is James Bond. I'm the new secret weapon. Casino Royale is too much for one James Bond. Next, Terence Cooper is James Bond. Barbara Boucher is James Bond. Casino Royale is indestructibly wild. Hello, sailor. Indescribably funny. Oh, you like that sort of thing, eh? Casino Royale Fun Movement. White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 475. Hello and welcome to On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast, brought to you by White Rocket Entertainment in association with all of our great supporters, via Patreon.com. I'm Van Allen Plexico, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Alan J. Porter. Welcome aboard, Alan. Thanks, Van. It's great to be here. It's taken me two years of pestering you to get you to watch these <laughs> movies, so I'm really interested to hear your first-time viewer experience of the the two, I was going to say unofficial, but they are actually official versions of Casino Royale, uh, hmm. because they were actually officially licensed, so they are proper Bond movies, no matter what anybody else may think. Wow. Okay. Well, two. I was just thinking, if you've pressured me for two years to watch them, clearly I didn't hold out long enough. Um, but no, that's not entirely true because I have, I do have some good things to say. I also have some bad things to say, <laughs> depending on what we're talking about. So, what we're here to talk about, of course, are the two Casino Royale movies. Well, the, the Casino Royale is a TV show, right? TV episode, right? Yeah. So we're, just to clarify, we're going to cover today. We're going to cover a Casino Royale, the non-Eon versions of Casino Royale, which is the 1954 TV mm-hmm. uh, show and the 1967 movie. So neither one of these is part of the Eon cycle that has led up to 24 movies with number 25 coming at some vague point in the non-disease future, correct? Correct. But they uh, were, uh, to my point, um, yeah. they were officially licensed. Um, we'll get a bit 
into the background of sort of how that came about as well. Excellent, so. excellent. Right. So the two that we have, we've got this this television production from what year? 1954. 1954. Okay. And then we've got the 1967 movie, which was like a full-blown, I guess, Columbia Pictures film with an amazing cast and directors and just you know the, the, the everything about it the budget looks like a bond movie so these are two very odd ducks really because it's not really kind of what it turns out to be in a lot of ways so um, all right so how should we talk how do you want to do this you, you want to start out talking about the TV installment yeah. and first yeah, okay yeah. so yeah, let's 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 talk about them chronologically sort of as much as anything's going to make sense in these discussions I think that's probably going to be about one of the few things that make sense about these two movies so I'm here to discuss what my impressions were of these two things but I'm also here to learn from you master as to what you can educate me and our listeners about these two productions so why don't you take it away and and get us rolling on the first one okay so the 1954 one as this is uh, you know very early into Fleming's career at this point, 54, he's only written two novels, and amazingly, um, CBS played him $1,000 for the rights to produce a TV adaptation of his first novel, which was Casino Royale, um, which is pretty good going for somebody that's just had, you know, just published only two novels at that point, um, really back, not that not that well known in the US. Back uh, then, that was probably about $3 million. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I should, I should have... Uh, Put it into one of those inflation things, but I haven't. But, oh, I'll but, yeah, do it. Thousand dollars. Thousand dollars was pretty good money. I'll do it because I got them. I've got them standing by from Miami Heist. I'm constantly having to translate money from the '60s. So, I, you, you go ahead, and I'll let you know in just a minute. Okay. So, um, climax was basically a anthology drama show of one-hour live performances of well-known stories, literature, plays, and so forth that was put out by uh, CBS. It ran for many years. Um, and this particular episode aired on October the 1st, 1954, and it really is a truncated version of the book's plot, and it follows it pretty closely. Um, though it did swap the sort of nature of the Anglo-American alliance, if you like, for the U.S. audience that it made Bond an American agent and lighter a British one. And mm-hmm. this is basically where I'm going to get on one of my soapboxes because I always hear it. People reference this one as, oh, that's the one where he was Jimmy Bond. Um, that is not the case. Um, the credits actually give the character the name James Bond. And when he refers to himself, he refers to himself as James Bond. Um, what it is is a couple of the characters within the play call him Jimmy. Mm-hmm. Um, so his name is not Jimmy Bond. This is not the one where he is called Jimmy Bond because that's not true. The that's character tr- is actually still James Bond. I'm going to get off that. So can, can I? Can, well, can I interject here? That's a good point. I w- that's something I wanted to comment on. So this is as good of a time as any. Yes, I was going into this expecting it to be terrible on the partially on the grounds that this was the infamous quote Jimmy Bond unquote production. And as I watched it, I'm like, well, but. That's not. I mean, yeah, you, the, the the they're flipped. The British and the American are flipped. But other than that, yeah, somebody refers to him that way. But but it's but yeah, it's exactly like you said. That's not like the official. That's not like what he's known as. That's just what a couple people call him during the show. So, I, I found that criticism to be way overblown from what I've always heard. And I was pleasantly surprised for, about that. So, what did you think about the 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 way that it follows the the plot of Casino Royale? I thought that considering this was essentially a stage play, 
fit into like one, basically one big room more or less, or two rooms Mm -hmm. with an exterior, I thought it was excellent. I thought they did about as good of a job as you could do with a very limited budget and a limited stage and a limited everything, right? I mean, they, they, this was, this was one step above making a, a radio audio drama out of it and, and a couple of steps below like a high-end Eon movie. It was kind of somewhere in between there. But what it did at the time it did it with the resources it had to work with, I thought was excellent, 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 really good. I thought all the actors were good. The cast was good. I liked, I mean, even though the Bond was American, I could just kind of like go with that since at least Felix would... like if, if Felix had been American too, it wouldn't have felt like a British Anglo thing like it's supposed to. And just flipping them around, while that is disappointing, at least it kept the same dynamic, even if it was backwards, you know? And so I, I had very... And I thought Peter Lorre was a great Bond villain for that day and age. He, you could tell he was a little past his prime. I mean... I, I got the sense from him that this that this was a Peter Lorre who was collecting a paycheck and playing Peter Lorre and getting to be a, a big bad guy instead of a flunky for a change and enjoying it. But I could still see him like kicking back when the camera wasn't on, smoking a cigarette and drinking a scotch and, and being like, how much am I getting paid again? When's my check coming? You know. But but other than that, <laughs> and and by the way. The, the the female lead was it was that Vesper? Well, yeah, I was going to say that was the one I was going to talk about. I thought it was very interesting that they actually combined um, some of some of Lighter's stuff, some of Vesper Lind, and some of Mathis's stuff all together yes. into the female lead, who became Valerie Mathis, who in this mm. was actually and it was the agent of the Dersian Bureau. So she was basically taking Mathis's role, but yeah. also she was also the Bond girl, and she was also the mole of. Um, Lashif, uh, so she became a very multifaceted character in this, which I thought was quite fascinating, and I think they really pulled it off. Yes, uh, and good gosh, she's a top five Bond girl all time in terms of looks. Not that you know, yeah. you and I on this show, we are not that shallow. We judge our Bond women by their accomplishments and by how awesome they are in so many ways, right? I mean, that's why my favorite is is, is Wei Lin. That being said, we do, I think, if I can speak for you for just a second, we do appreciate the aesthetic qualities that the Bond ladies bring to the production as well. And I got to say, she is a top five Bond, quote unquote, girl that I've ever seen. I, I was blown away. I was like, wow, she's a knockout. So, Yeah, uh, I was at Linda Christian. And I think she, uh, you know, unfa- gets unfairly overlooked in discussions around the Bond girls and stuff. I mean, she is the first live-action Bond girl. Uh, yeah, I didn't know about her, and I was just like, whoa, where has she been all my life? My goodness. Yeah. Um, I think she actually did a couple of Tarzan movies as well. I think I also <laughs> know her from, from some of the Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan movies and stuff. Um, so, And that's, by yeah. the way, this is not the only time I'm going to rave about a Bond girl t- on this episode. There's another one coming soon. <laughs> there are several very lucky, lovely well, ladies in the, uh, in the 67 one, but we'll get to that. Um... So, yeah, I mean, just to sort of run through the plot. So um, it starts with um, CIA agent James Bond, uh, played <laughs> by Barry Nelson. But that stands for Combined Intelligence yeah. Agency. It's a nice little word. And he basically comes under fire from an assassin outside the casino as he's heading in, which never really quite made sense pop 
plot-wise, but it was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and he, he manages to dodge the bullets by hiding behind a pillow, which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> um, and, then, and then inside he meets his uh, contact, Clarence Leiter, and I love um, the way that actually Leiter briefed Bond. Well, there was two things. One was the, the little recognition sign that they did by breaking matches and putting them into a certain pattern on the, de- on the desk or on the table between them. Um, as their sort of call sign recognition thing. I thought that was pretty cool. And, yes. and I love the way that, as a way of getting over the exposition, Light is like, teach me this game of Baccarat. So it gives mm. Bond a, a reason to give you an exposition download on how the game works. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of that, Light is also briefing him on yeah. why he has to beat Le Chief. I thought it was a really clever way of getting over the plot in a very concise, concise time and teaching the audience both the backstory and the mechanisms of the game that they needed to understand for the later act. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I'm saying they did. They they took advantage of what they had about as well yeah. as you could. I thought that the whoever wrote the 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 teleplay did a spectacular job of adapting because you know you can look at it and just say oh they left this out they changed that I don't like it grr. But when you stop and think of what they were up against trying to fit that book into like an in 45 minutes of television in a you know you know in like a small sound stage my gosh yes they they did brilliant workarounds they they certainly did yeah um so uh, so the second act is is basically around the back of our game where you know bond sort of loses all the money and then he gets the uh input of funds which actually turns out comes comes from valerie from the desi and bureau rather than mm. the uh, the CIA in this case, um, and he ends up beating Le Chief, uh, and we get the the thing with the right out of the book, the guy with the cane gun sticking it in the back of Bond's back. To, you know, I'm going to blow your spines off if you you know you make a move and Bond manages to escape and sort of turn things around. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and then we get for me actually, I think it's one of the cleverest parts of this, and it's really great storytelling again, is when Le Chief actually captures Bond and wants the check because Bond had the money made out to a check where Chief wants the check with the winnings on and tortures Bond by there's no chair and cane cane yeah. chair and beta this time this basically puts Bond in the uh, in the bathtub and does something with a pair of pliers to Bond's <laughs> toes out of shot you've no idea what he's no doing no idea that, wor- um, that but, works better than knowing, I think, in some ways. Yeah, exactly. All you know is it's excruciatingly painful, and Valerie thinks it's gruesome. So I don't know whether he's pulling it, breaking his toes, pulling his toenails out, whatever. But I think it, again, works so well. It's so it's almost as cringeworthy as the cane chair, if not more so, because it's in your own mind. In, in terms of feet torture, it's up there with the original theatrical release of... Um, of um, Oh, crap. The Parker movie with Mel Gibson from 1999. The, you know, the movie that Mel Gibson did as Parker, he called him Porter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I can't think of the name of it for some strange reason. But anyway, yeah, in that, they've got Porter held down in a chair. They take his shoe off and they have a hammer. So basically, it's uh, it's hardware versus toes in these movies. And I'm, I'm not digging the... The outcome, yeah. <laughs> the vibe, yeah. So, uh, so anyway, Bond escapes. Um, has a fight between Bond and he's, he's, he turns around the fact that uh, earlier in the story it's established that the chief already always carries three razor blades with him, um, and he mm. carelessly left his cigarette case in the bathroom with a razor blade in it. So Bond manages, and Valerie manages to 
get that music to escape and then they have a fight with Bond's guards and it basically ends up with well, the chief gets manages to get Valerie um, between him and Bond threatens her with yet another concealed razor blade and uh, she struggles breaks free slightly and Bond basically shoots shoots Le Chief, um dead at the end um, which you know as you said is, is a pretty compact thing of the Casino Royale Casino Royale plot but doing it in 45 minutes and doing it in 45 minutes in a as you said in a confined set and live I mean there was no retakes there was no other angles there was no fill-ins there was like mm-hmm. you've got one shot of doing this guys it's a live tv show that's and amazing so I, you know i i think they they all delivered i i know barry nelson gets a bit of stick for playing bond a bit wooden um he's, he's not as much a screen presence as peter laurie as le Chief, but i think he did a pretty good job i mean it's not like bond had been a, there was anything established as to what bond was like he had a exactly a clean, sheet of pa- clean sheet of paper so i think he did pretty good um right exactly there's yeah we're we're looking from the hind side of all these people that have played bond and given us this you know beginning with connery's lasting indelible persona but all that this guy knew was he was kind of a CIA secret agent guy. So he played him like a tough guy, cop, you know, FBI agent type. And that's pretty much what he did. Yeah. So so the interesting thing is this was actually the live performance and that it was actually sh- in 54. It was actually a color TV, a color transmission. It was actually shown in color. Um, and then it was lost or thought lost for decades. Um, oh. But what we, somebody had actually, while it was being... Um, shown somebody had actually used a black and white kinescope recording um where basically they put a lens focused on the screen of the video monitor and recorded it and that was done basically as a backup so the studio had a record of live performances um and then it was just archived away and forgotten about um so pretty much that's what every studio did before the idea before video type tape they would basically put a camera on a video monitor during a live performance and take a little black and white movie of it um and that was lost until it was located in 1981 um but didn't include the last two minutes um and it, interesting there was always a a sort of a, a rumor that during the live performance um peter laurie got up off the floor after he'd been shot dead <laughs> and walked to his dressing room and the audience saw it um but when the last two minutes was eventually found um, that point was that was um, disproved. Huh. Though actually, I just I just literally yesterday finished reading Andrew Lysett's, um biography of Ian Fleming that was written in '95, I think, um, and he actually mentions that um, rumor in the in the biography about Peter Laurie getting up and being seen walking <laughs> off set, um, but that turns out not to be true. Huh. So, um, See, I, I could have totally believed that though. Laurie be just like wandering over looking for his paycheck and ready to head out but <laughs> yeah, I, I, he had so. the, it felt like he was slumming himself to be on there i don't know I, he you know he had he was a guy that had been a you know a supporting actor in a lot of big movies like casablanca and and the maltese falcon yeah. obviously but he had also been a lead actor in um the those those movies about the japanese private eye that i can't mr moto oh, the, oh. Okay, Mr. Moto, yeah, and so he always, I think, I, the impression I've always gotten from Laurie is he thought he should have been a bigger, you know, leading man, almost star in a way than he was, and so, you know, he was probably just taking this for a paycheck and and just kind of putting in minimal effort, uh, which is understandable because again, at that time, James Bond wasn't yet a big deal, you know. Yeah, I mean, it didn't really mean anything. So, I would, I remember. 
that uh, we actually did a copy of uh, Saturday Morning Matinee with Jared and his crew um, when we talked about this. And on the research, I th think we said that Peter Laurie actually appeared in quite a lot of the climax um, shows in the sort of 1950s, hmm. late 1950s. I think he, he was sort of one of the, uh, if you like, repertory players for the mm -hmm. CBS Climax TV series. Mm. Right. Um, that uh, makes sense. Yeah, um, and actually just looking, while we've been talking, I just looked it up, and yeah, he did uh, one, two, three, four, five, six different wow. shows as part of the Climax series, Okay, uh, of which Casino Royale was the first one, so they obviously were fairly pleased with his performance on Casino Royale. Yeah, so, I think so. Yeah. Well, he's you know he is, does have a presence, and he is a famous vil sort of villainous, semi-villainous, semi-lackey. Uh, semi character by the way i do have the results on the inflation how much that uh oh yeah what was a thousand dollars a thousand dollars a thousand dollars in 1954 that he was paid for the rights to this today would be just under ten thousand. Oh, still pretty cheap then yep yeah yeah so uh interestingly actually uh four years after the production of uh, casino royale cbs invited fleming back to write uh, 32 episodes for a proposed james bond tv show um and he wrote outlines for the series, but it never actually went in production. And some of those unused ideas became some of the short stories, um, such oh. as uh, For Your Eyes Only and so forth. And actually, some of the other unused ones have recently been used as part of the recent Anthony Horowitz um, continuation novels that are set in the Fleming timeline. Um, they've used a couple of the unused TV show outlines. So, so it's sort of interestingly that the, the, the uh, I'm trying to, I was going to say fallout, but that's not quite the word. But uh, the influence of this 1954 TV show is still being felt right up to today in the fact that the most recent novels are actually using stuff done for CBS that was done as a result of the success of this 1954 um, hmm. TV show. So nice. it's sort of woven throughout uh, conti and continues to be woven throughout uh, the, the Bond canon. So. Mm -hmm. Well, I was very positively uh, surprised. I I was not expecting much. I had always heard next to nothing about it other than quote Jimmy Bond unquote. That's the only thing I ever heard about it. And so I mm -hmm. went in with the lowest possible expectations, and I was riveted. I thought, "This is awesome. This is so good. I, why are people saying bad things about this?" So, I guess it, yeah. a lot of a lot of it depends on where you where you're coming from and where you start out thinking. If you went in thinking it was going to be, you know. T uh, 2006 <laughs> Casino Royale, you're going to be like, ah. But if you go in expecting it to be garbage and you watch it, you're like, wow, this was really well done. Yeah, I think that that's part of it. I think the, the Jimmy Bond thing, which of course isn't helped by what we're going to talk about next, um, <laughs> as, as, as colored it, um, you know, where there is actually is a character called Jimmy Bond. Um, so I, I, I think that sort of retroactively colored the 1954 version as well. Plus the fact that, you know, for, for many, many years, p people didn't see it so those people that couldn't see it so those people who knew about it just were going off written descriptions mm -hmm. um so and maybe if you know a few pictures so you know i i think and it wasn't really widely distributed even once it was found i mean you know my copy is on the uh, the cd uh, the dvd of the 67 uh, version um and i think that for a long time that was sort of the only place you could get it um but it is now widely available. If you haven't watched the 1954 Climax version of uh, Casino Royale, um, I highly recommend that you do. And it's, uh, avail it's available in full on YouTube. So just, just go on YouTube and uh, type in Casino Royale 1954, and you can find a very good copy online. Wow. Sit back and relax and watch the whole thing. And I think, like Van, you'll be 
pleasantly surprised as to how good a version of Casino Royale it really is. I didn't realize it was on there. That's really cool. I, I borrowed my copy from Jared, who is the fount of all things I need to borrow. So, that's <laughs> so, but yeah, that's pretty cool. So, did Jared uh, loan you Casino Royale 67? He did, and I'll never forgive him. I'm not going to say it. Are you going to forgive him? <laughs> I anticipated where you're going with that. Sorry. And uh, let's. Uh, and before we get into that one, let me go ahead and pause here for our for our patrons. We have to thank Matthew Flowers, Carl Von Drunker, Samuel Salvatore, and Christopher Burleson, as well as Phil Amthor, Ben Spooner, Bart Lindsay, Bradley Blackman, William Glenn Matthews, Gary Grant, Brian Gray, Willie Carden, Tom Anderson, Susan Trawick, Logan Chilton, Stephen Thompson, Chris Usher, Steve Trawick, and Richard Stevens. And then, of course, we got William Morgan, Johnny Caldwell, Emmanuel Seaman, WDE Richie, Winston Body, Clinton Stewart, and Christopher Stewart. Hey, guys. Mickey B, Phil Davis, Joshua Corbett, John Otsuki, Preston Settle, Daniel Odom, A.U. Falling Up Alchemist, Kevin Smith, Clarence Alford, Will Summerford, David Hegler, Theodore Gary, Reynolds Wolf, Joel Beckham, Valiant Hermes, Jacob and Robin Fleming, Clay Henson, Ann Kangian, Catherine England, George Gaston, John McCune, David Evers, Timothy, Steve Harlan, Dan Thompson, Wes Atkinson, and Rich Reimer. Then we have Sarah Hines, Darius Benton, a couple of new folks, welcome aboard. Rob Morgan, Blake Heron, Hugh Anderson, Stephen Houston, Cato the Barner, Danny Flack, Papa Todd, Russell Milling, Kevin Canoy, Don Zederman, Ross, Lane Middleton, Shannon Butson, Randall Walker, Shane Bailey, Chris Thrash, Tony Perry, Alex Wynn, Josh Teal, David Simpson, Earl Ricks, Mike Finley, and C.T. Wayne. And finally, good old Jeremy Minton, Wardam Wade, Spanky, J.W. Rice, Jason Albrick, Mitch Vigicana, Mick Vigicana, not Mitch, Russell Souther, I've said these names a million times and I still mess them up, <laughs> Paul Bankson, Joseph Iliff, Justin Bean, Kevin Mahan, Stephen Wyatt. See, if you fast forward through this, you miss all the fun. Trevor Johnson, Auburn Elvis, Robert Drain, Brandon Smith, Royce Alvarez, Thomas Brinson, David Smiley, Matthew Wagstaff, Donnie Reynolds, Wade Carson, Ivor Evans, John Zavachin, Michael Morton, Lawrence Kane, Darren Pyle. I'm sure nobody fast forwards through it. You want to hear all my wacky mispronunciations. Chris Camo, Ben Amos, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, Patrick Williams, Stephen Schuster, James Taylor, John Stubbs, Kenneth Brent Rains, Nicholas Craig, Joseph A. Miller, Mark Squire, Chris Brant Rumble, our one-time and anonymous donors. And we thank you all. We really appreciate you. We couldn't do it literally without you. Visit www.plexico.net, P-L-E-X-I-C-O.net to become a member and join the fun. All right. So, yes, I unfortunately, I was able to get a copy of the 1967 Casino Royale, uh, something that clearly everyone involved must have been on drugs, and you have to be on drugs to appreciate. Now, you're going to tell me why that's not true, right? Or are you? Oh, no, I think I think you do need to be on drugs to appreciate it. I mean, <laughs> yes. I, I, I will come straight out and actually say this is actually one of my guilty pleasures. I sort of quite like this movie. Oh, um, God. Oh, God. Oh, but not, not, not as a movie. Um, it's a mess. It is a complete oh, and utter mess. Gosh. Total, to, totally agree with that. Um, I think having a couple of... Uh, Vespa martinis and maybe a couple of joints as well would probably <laughs> help it better. Um, it's something to watch late at night, I think. Well, um, right, let me I, tell you. I, let me, I, go, ahead. go ahead. I was going to say, and I think it's 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 a very much a uh, a product of 1967. Yeah. Um, I mean, you compare this with I don't know Yellow Submarine and other things that were you know uh, around in the psychedelic age, uh, the Monkeys movie Head. Um, yeah, it's it's. Clearly, clearly, um, people were uh, taking a few mind-altering things while they were. 
making this movie. Well, a cu- uh, let me say a couple of quick things up front. One is I was watching the last you know twenty minutes or so on my iPad in the kitchen uh, last a few days ago, and I made it through it. And then my wife was over doing something, cooking or something, and she says, "What was that?" And I'm, I'm like. I explained to her what it was, and she's like, it sounded horrible. I'm like, yeah. And then um, I, I said, I was, I was trying to find something to show her in particular that was horrible, but she didn't know that. So I rewound it like 10 minutes, and it's got that music playing through the whole last act of it, you know, that, that loud yeah. orchestra music, and up-tempo. And so I was rewinding to find something to show her, and it started playing again, and she looked at me like, are you torturing yourself again? What are you doing? I'm like, I'm just trying to find something. And so I played that part. And then she's like, well, Mira's got to see this. Hey, Mira. And so I had to watch the ending three times. (laughs) Alan, I had to, I had to rewind and watch the ending three times. And the third time I was just shaking my head and and going, I, you know, and Mira's Mira's mouth is hanging open. (laughs) I would say, yeah, the, the last 10, 20 minutes is just yeah, insane. It is insane. On an already insane movie. So. Yeah. But one of the reasons I, I, I think this is a movie that should be studied at film school. <laughs> okay. All right. And I I'll like give it. you my reasons. Because yes. so, what they set out to do is very interesting and it went completely wrong. <laughs> um, so I think it's interesting from that point of view. It's interesting from a diff, how different directors think, put, uh, chats things. I think it's interesting from how somebody tried and you can argue on the degree of success, try to weave a coherent cloth out of something that was not. Um, and it's also interesting on how the impact of the behavior of one major player can completely derail a movie. So I think it's got a lot of interesting things around the backstory. Um, so let me go a bit into the backstory and then yes. we can sort of get into the, the craziness of the oh, movie. Oh. And I am, I am well, not going to try and talk about the plot of this movie. There is a plot? <laughs> I had the other thing I was going to say and I almost forgot. Um, is that I was always I don't know why this is I, I you know I never thought of it as quote the 1967 Casino Royale I always thought of it as there's this I didn't even know about the 54 one I always thought of it as there's this other Bond movie from back in the 60s and it's got David Niven and Woody Allen in it that's how I thought of it and so I've always I mean if I'd stopped and really thought about the years and everything obviously I would have figured it out before now I just never stopped and thought about it and so I've just always just kind of thought of it as this must have been when they first tried to make a James Bond movie and it came out terrible and so they went back and regrouped and then made Dr. No. You see, I, for some reason, I always thought this came before any of the Eon movies. When I actually had the epiphany the other day that this thing actually came out after like four and at the same time as another good Bond movie, I was like, what the hell? Why are they doing this now? I, I mean, it, it's it's like if after phase one of the MCU, they did a completely ridiculous Iron Man movie that was nothing but a that was on the level of Flash Gordon from 1980. You know, it's like if the it's like if the third Star Wars movie had been 1980s Flash Gordon. I'd be like, what are they doing? Where did that come from? So so I, I just for some reason always thought that this movie was an aborted first attempt that went horribly wrong, and I am dumbfounded that they did this after knowing the formula that actually worked. So 
By all means, please educate me and the public listening on what the hell. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we already talked about the fact in 54, Fleming sold the rights of Casino Royale, the TV rights. Yes. So in 1955, he sold the film rights of Casino Royale okay. um, to a producer called Gregory Ratoff, who um, went and commissioned a script from Lorenzo Semple Jr. Do you remember that name? From I do. I'll Never Say Never Again. He never, ended up writing Never, never Say Never Again. Never say, uh, never say, never, <laughs> never. Yeah. With your favorite Bond track. Um, <laughs> so they thought, uh, Gregory Ratoff and Lorenzo Semple thought that Bond was actually too unbelievable and stupid. Um, <laughs> and wanted to do Casino Royale with a version of a female spy called Jane Bond. So oh all those goodness. people recently going on about, they ought to make a Jane Bond movie. I'm sorry, but you're like 60 years behind. <laughs> Times because that was talked about in 1956. So, wow, boom, boom, yeah. So, but it never got made. So, uh, after Ratoff, uh, he passed away in 1960, having had the the, the rights for five years, nothing happened with it. Um, So, his widow then sold the rights to this obscure book that she had to a producer called Charles K. Feldman. um, Capri Broccoli actually approached Feldman to buy the rights to Casino Royale back, um, but um, Feldman actually refused because by that time he was actually talking to Howard Hawks ah. to do a to do a Casino Royale movie with Cary Grant as James Bond. Whoa, that would be interesting. Which I know was something that Ian Fleming was uh, also talking about, and at one point I think uh, they were actually talking to Cary Grant about doing Doctor No, um, but he. He said he'd only want to do one movie. He wasn't going to sign up for, for multiples. Huh. Um, he would have been interesting. I like Cary Grant. Yeah. 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 So, uh, but after they'd, after uh, Howard Hawks um, saw Dr. No, he decided he didn't want to mess with uh, James Bond uh, and what Eon were doing, so he stepped away. Um, so, basically, Feldman had the rights to a Bond movie, but nobody really wanted to go head-to-head with Eon with a straightforward, serious James Bond movie. Hmm. Um, and so he took it to Columbia, who uh, suggested that maybe they do a spoof because there was things like Get Smart, Man from Uncle. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. All these other things going on on TV. There was the Flint movies. There was the, mm-hmm. So basically, there was a plethora of lighthearted spy movies. The spy craze was really, you know, mid-60s was really picking up driven by Bond, but there's all this other spy stuff going on. Um, so they they basically persuaded Feldman that the best thing to do was to do a spoof version. Um, so he went to a screenwriter called Ben Hecht who produced multiple versions of potential treatments. Most of actually were pretty straight adaptations of the plot and themes from the novel focused around vice and gambling, which wasn't really suitable for a, uh, for a spoof. Um, so the only thing that from his screen play that actually made it into the final movie and one of the things that makes it so ridiculous was the idea of giving multiple agents the name of James Bond after James Bond had died so in his version James Bond died and then they used the name the code name James Bond and 007 across multiple agents to confuse the enemy so again all these people recently have got oh well I think James Bond and he's just a code name and he could be anybody and I've had this great revelation sorry been around (laughs) since the mid 60s if not before so, um, but uh, unfortunately, uh, the screenwriter Ben Heck died from a heart attack two days after turning in his script. Oh wow! Um, so they then gave it to Joseph Heller, 
Catch-22. Oh, Catch-22, yes. Yeah, and he took a go at it. Um, and then they weren't happy with that, so they then gave it to Billy Wilder, who wrote The Apartment. Wow, and okay. Awesome movies, comedy movies. So we've already got multiple people in stirring the pot and so forth. Um, by which time, they'd actually also um, hired Peter Sellers um, to play one of the James Bond characters. Um, Peter Sellers then hired uh, a writer called Terry S- Southern to write his dialogue, but not do the rest of the script because he wanted to outshine Orson Welles and Woody Allen. <laughs> oh, <God>. All right. <laughs> so, and then Woody Allen, who had also been cast at that point, which got hold of the bizarre. script and started putting his stuff in. Um, so, yeah, so the script was a mess. Okay. This is the Caddyshack yeah. of Bond movies. Right. Except so, that it's then, not funny, like a cat, like Caddyshack was. <laughs> so um, what they then decided to do um, was one of the ideas that they came up with is that they would hire multiple directors, and each of the directors would be given a sequence within the script for them to make a mini-movie based on that part of the script in their own style and their own way. So it's a bit like, it was a bit like those... Have you ever read like, the Detective club series which has like Agatha Christie, P.D. James a whole bunch of where they start off a story and say one writer writes the first chapter then they hand it off to the second writer who just takes that first chapter and then write, you know goes off and writes their second chapter and then a third writer comes in and writes a third chapter and the story basically develops right. organically there was a couple. Of, there were a couple of movies a few years ago that I want to say maybe Quentin Tarantino d- directed part of, and Rodriguez. Yeah, he did like a like a, the Roadhouse. Was it the Roadhouse? Something like yeah. Mm-hmm. There were there yeah, were a yeah. couple in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, same thing. So that's what they were trying to do back in the mid '60s. So they hired John Huston, who was going to do the early scenes of James Bond's house and cat and the um, the castle. Yeah, uh, the, the the name the names in every category on this movie are mind blowing. It yeah, just shows sorry. you that if you put all these amazingly talented people together, they can still poop out a big poop. Because yeah. I mean, John Huston alone, this movie should have been amazing. I just can't right. fathom it. And then they gave Kenneth Hughes. They gave the Berlin section to um, Robert Parrish. Um, did some of the scenes with. Uh, the casino scenes, and then uh, Richard Talmaday, Talmadage, who was uncredited, did your favorite part, the big finale. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> and then, but it also got to the point where only certain uh, actors would work with certain directors. Um, and also the fact that they put each of these directors was given eight weeks, and very few of them actually completed their section in the eight weeks, but then they had to go off and do other stuff. So they had four... All the different sections done by different uh, directors with different actors, which were, were incomplete and didn't take take a narrative of what was already a me- messy script. <laughs> and you you actually mentioned budget. So the initial budget was six million, which actually ballooned to twelve million. Um, that was about in line with the other Bond movies of this era, though, wasn't it? I was going to say, by contrast, Thunderball the sa- released the same year was eleven million. Yeah. So. Well, no, Thunder Thunderball came out sixty five, right? 60, oh, 65, yeah. So this is you, you, you only lived twice. You only lived twice, yeah. So, but yeah, Thunderball was 11 million. So, this um, is right around the, this is comparable. Yeah, yeah. So, but that's all of this is the backstory. And then you have the whole thing with Peter Sellers. Do you know the story? <laughs> no, about Peter no, Sellers? please continue. Okay. All right. So, the main drama, despite all this stuff going on, 
and this mismatch of directors and unfinished pieces and um, messy scripts and virtually everybody rewriting stuff. Peter Sellers decided that he wanted to play Bond straight. Um, and there's also, and I've not seen this confirmed anywhere, but I've, I've seen sort of several people say that a lot of the cast were not told it was a spoof. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. So I'm not sure how you've got to film some of these scenes and not figure out it was a spoof. I know. But anyway, know. but... But, but Sellers, even though he knew it was a spoof going in, decided that he wanted to play Bond straight. He wanted to James Bond, be James Bond. So he kept rewriting and improvising scenes to make them play a bit more seriously. Um, and he actually also felt intimidated by Orson Welles and wanting to, uh, to sort of outdo Orson Welles. Um, but Welles actually didn't think anything much of Peter Sellers and kept describing it as an amateur. And it got to the point Ooh. where the two of them would not be on set together. Wow. Um, so a lot of the casino, the big battle in the casino between Bond, or Evelyn Tremble, and um, Le Chief, the two of them were not on set together at all. So <laughs> that was stitched together from different shots. Um, and then Sellers got so bad, he thumped one of the um, directors, who was actually his friend, Joseph McGrath, he actually he thumped him, got sent home. Mm. Um, and, th- and then he started to stop he started not coming to work. He would be absent for days. At one point, he was absent for two weeks, um, refused to appear in his scenes with Orson Welles, um, and was fired. In the middle of the movie? Partway through. In the middle of the movie. Wow. Um, so they had to rewrite the end of the movie, or part of the movie. Um, so you can pretty much tell at the point where he, he run, um, they get to the casino stuff is pretty much where it falls apart without sellers. Um, so pretty much from the bit of him running out of the casino and getting into the Lotus Formula 3. Um, from that point on, that's all made up of stuff that had basically been cut um, and unused sequences that they'd already filmed with Sellers. They basically took what they had on the cutting room floor if it had Peter Sellers in and tried to stitch together a movie <laughs> with it. Good grief. Um, so a lot of the ending and the interlocking scenes... Um, they had to do or they had to do stand-ins and do long shots um so um they they write the bit at the end where they they all die and go to heaven yes. on the original the original version of that they actually had a cardboard cut out of peter sellers with wings um, <laughs> on it and then the later versions which is probably the one you've seen and the one i have they actually put in a shot of him still in the highland dress instead yes um, i was wondering so dr- about that yeah, the, the the torture dream sequence, that's all made up of existing shots. The bit with Sterling Moss, that was something they tried and didn't like and threw away, but then I put it back in the movie. Um, some of the stuff with him and Ursula Andress was actually stuff that was used and then thrown away and put back in. Um, yet, despite all of this, Peter Sellers had actually negotiated a 3% of the gross profits from the movie in perpetuity. So his descendants today are still making money, considerable money, off this movie. Oh, my goodness. Even though he basically completely... I mean, it was a mess anyway, but it, he just... Um, from everything I've read, it, he was just unbelievable to work with at this point. Um, and this this is generally accepted as being a low, uh, low point in his career. I don't know what was going on with him personally um, and stuff, but, yeah. It, it, uh, and I'm a big Peter Sellers fan. I think he was, a, again, one of these guys that sort of fine line between genius and insanity, and it's a line yeah. he sort of meandered down um but at this point yeah he was at a real low ebb and he was just nobody could work with him even people who worked with him for years so uh, so what they tried to do was pull together 
So it came down to a director called Val Guest who'd been brought in to do the scenes with Woody Allen and David Niven. Um, and he was given the task of basically trying to pull all this stuff together. So he finished some of John Huston's stuff. He finished some of the other people's stuff. And then he came up with the idea of trying to pull a, use David Niven and uh, build a framing sequence from the beginning to the end using David Niven and Ursula Andress as a way of trying to salvage um, the mess of the movie, which is why you've got, to my mind, as this, there's at least two separate movies in here, if not three. Yes. One of which, one of which is the, and I actually think it's a neat idea, the idea of them recruiting a card player like Evelyn Trim, Tremble and having him go to the casino as James Bond to play the chief. Mm-hmm. So you've got that, which is sort of the Casino Royale plot, um, which if you actually watch the credits here, it says this movie was suggested by the novel <laughs> Casino Royale. <laughs> Um, I, I got, got an hour into it, and I'm like, what does this have to do with Casino Royale? <laughs> and then you've got the Austin Powers bit yeah. wrapped around it, which is the David Niven um, yeah, whatever thing with um, Sir, James. Woody Ap- Sir James, which I actually like the idea of a retired James Bond coming back out to solve a problem. I, I'd actually love them to see do that with Piers Brosnan and having oh. be a retired Bond coming back, helping an, an agent or something like that. Sir I think Pierce. That but yeah, you have this sort of Austin Powers, Sir James thing taking on Smirsh, and it turns out that the you know the Doctor Noah, the baddie behind Smirsh, is his incompetent nephew, Jimmy Bond, played by Woody Allen, and you've got all the beautiful <laughs> ladies, and you've got the, the the psychedelic stuff, and you've got the, the weird stuff at the end, um, with and, and you've got the hidden base, and you know all, them really going over the top about with the, with the spoof stuff. Um, so I, you've sort of got the semi-serious Casino Royale in the middle with this Austin Powers extreme. And th- this is how I sort of look at this movie. For me, this is Austin Powers before anybody even thought about Austin yeah. Powers. And there are, there are actually some bits in this movie that when you watch it now, having recently watched Austin Powers again, I'm like, that's where they got that from. That's where they got that from. That's directly, you know, it's got the circular bed. It's got the, you know, the come on stuff. It's got it's got the fembots almost with the, the, it does. the gorgeous girls with the machine, bot, the machine guns. It's got so much in it that is, you know, the ridiculous machines and even some of the music cues in Austin Powers are straight out of the mu- out of this one um, and I will say one of the things I absolutely adore about this movie is the soundtrack um, I, I love the music yeah I, it, it gives me so. hives to think about it but but I'm, <laughs> in relation to the movie I gotta say this movie is the only one that challenges the spy who loved me for least active villain Who's, who is less active Stromberg at his dinner table in The Spy Who Loved Me or Orson Welles at the poker table because neither one of them move. They both sit at tables and say menacing things and then, I guess, die, right, more or less. Yeah, and, and, and the other thing is, and it's one of the reasons that Orson Welles and uh, Peter Sellers uh, fell out, is Orson Welles actually just wanted to do his magic tricks. <laughs> he didn't want to do the script, which is why you've got all these upset uh, really non sequitur magic tricks in the casino is because they hired Orson Welles and Orson Welles says I want to do my magic tricks so they was like okay 
<laughs> that was bizarre. That was another. Yeah, I, that's another thing I got the impression of all the way through the movie. I got the impression that they just brought all these big names in and said, "Well, you're kind of in a James Bond movie, but really just do whatever you want. Do whatever makes you happy." So David, I, Niven, I think they were they were in so much trouble by that point. It's like let let's just get stuff in the can and we'll figure it yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fill it in. I mean, because David Niven does his little prissy, you know, David Niven stuff, and Woody Allen tells his jokes, self-deprecating jokes, and Orson Welles does his magic tricks, and then they have a big musical number with Native Americans parachuting through the roof with <laughs> teepees as their parachutes, at which point I'm just like, I, I'm like, there's nothing, they, there's nothing left they could do that would more flabbergast me at this point. I just, at that point, I, my brain checked out, and I said, you know what, I just... I don't even I don't even know. So yeah, it but it, it felt like they just kind of said, "Do your thing, and we'll figure out a movie later." <laughs> and it's kind of yeah. it doesn't and it's and it's glued together like a, it does it like a patchwork quilt. It doesn't it yeah. There's no oh. I don't know. It does have the <laughs> other? It does have the other really remarkable Bond girl. And as you said, there are a lot. Yes, there are quite a few lovely lovely ladies in this movie. But I thought that the Money Penny. This is the only Bond movie I can think of where the Money Penny actress is the biggest bombshell. The Money oh, Penny. Boucher, yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh, the the Money Penny in this movie stole the show from all the others. And that's a movie with Ursula Andress in it, among others. She was gorgeous. Yes, Woo. she was. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's her, and so there's a there's a there's a few. So you mentioned Ursula Andress. There's actually quite a few folks who are in this who have actually also been in the official Eon um, movies mm. too. Um, the one that really surprised me is uh, so the, when um, Sir, da- Sir James Bond, David Niven, is at the castle in um, Scotland with Deborah Kerr, Deborah Kerr overplaying the <laughs> smush <laughs> and, um, lady and having such a ball with that part i mean she was clearly um just having a, a ball playing it i think uh, and being it so over the top but if you remember when they give him a bath and one of the young uh, they have the bevy of all the daughters and what is that they're all aged between 18 and 19 but there's 11 of them and they're supposed to be m's daughters um which was, was quite funny but when they He's actually in the goes to take a bath, and one of them is in there as the temperature um, thermometer. One of the young girls is in the, in the bath as the thermometer. So that actress is actually the same actress who played Ruby in On a Majesty's Secret Service. Oh, yeah, okay. Ruby, the one that wrote on his leg. Yeah, yeah, and that Bond goes to bed with and actually yeah. reveals the plans and stuff. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, wow. so okay. she was actually one of the angels, of, or the, the main angel of death in on a Majesty's Secret Service. Right. Um, wow. One okay. of the other, one of the other girls there is uh, Alexander Bastedo, who played um, was in the early show about uh, superheroes called the Champion. She was one of the three main superpowered uh, characters in that uh, TV show from a little later in the sixties. One of my all-time favorite shows, um, and actually uh, was also in, I think. All the way up to Batman Begins, she would have bit parts in genre movies. Um, so, hmm. um, so yeah, there's there's quite a few, um, and I'm trying to think. 
Um, so yeah, there's a few things in this that I sort of like. The whole Vespa Lind is the ruthless tycoon and the real villain of the piece. I mean, she's the one that turns on everybody um, with the machine gun firing bagpipes, which again we see in one of the later Bond movies. <laughs> yes, um, oh, that was good. But I think Vespa Lind here sort of predates Electric King in The World Is Not Enough as the sort of, you know. Yes. The, you know, the villainess. I thought that everybody. too, yeah. Yeah, that was, yeah. That was cool. Um, and she buys the Eiffel Tower, which Drax does in Moonraker. <laughs> yes, so. that's right. I did catch that. So, um, uh, and I, I will say actually one of the things I really do love is the, uh, the Dusty Springfield song here, The Luck of Love, uh, between Peter Sellers and Ursula Andress um, that plays under their sort of getting together scene so um that was i thought that was pretty cool i like that's a great song i love that song the look of love uh, but, which again i believe they're using austin powers don't they when he actually introduced his Burt Baccarat in austin powers been a long i think he's playing time. that song so um and uh, oh yeah there's another one it's a tentatively so q's assistant in this four dice the one who is measuring uh, evelyn tremble up for his his suit with all the gadgets in it Yes. Um, that's played by John Wells, who played Dennis Thatcher in the For Your Eyes Only end sequence with Margaret Thatcher. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's great. I didn't know that for some reason. I, you probably mentioned it. Yeah, yeah. So that's good. The, the, there's a, and if, if you're a fan or, or aficionado of British TV and movies from the 60s and 70s, this is so packed with uh, people. Ronnie Corbett, um, Jacqueline Bissett. Um, yes, I who, saw her name in there. Yeah, as Miss Goodthighs. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> of course. Uh, Anna, Quayle, Anna Quayle, who was in the who was the um, in the spy school, the headmistress of the spy school. There, um, she was in the TV's Avengers and was in a Hard Day's Night and a whole bunch of other stuff. Oh, and Bert Kwok, oh, um, yeah. who was the Chinese Chinese general in the auction room, who was also in Goldfinger and You Only Live Twice, and and, and would go Noble on. House. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, everybody was a noble house, but he <laughs> he he was he was yeah he was Philip Chin, but he also played Cato right in the in Peter Sellers' mm. Pink Panther movies. Yeah, yes, he was Cato. You're right. So, so yeah, so, all kinds of interesting connections I, here. I, so for me, again, one of the fun things about this is just the number of faces. Like we said, we you know there's a Sterling Moss cameo. Um, there's and then at the end, of course, you've got the absolute ridiculous uh, cameos like George Raft and. Um, the French guy Del Mondo and yeah there's just absolutely ridiculous scene oh and Dave, Dave Prowse makes his first on screen no. uh, no. appearance in this movie yes do you know guess what he was no I don't remember he was the Frankenstein cat monster walking around that shows them the <sighs> escape door at oh the end gosh. oh wow I never would have figured that out <laughs> so yeah so so, so much um so, so I, this movie actually takes the credit for the greatest number of actors in a Bond film to have appeared or go on to appear in the rest of the Eon series. Wow. So there's one for your Bond trivia night. Yes. Wow. This okay. Yeah. But again, the, the, well, I have no complaints with the directors or the cast, and it looked great, and they spent a lot of money on it. It just... I mean, do you... How, how would you balance out, you know... If we could pause it for just a second that this was not a successful movie or at least a successful movie-watching experience, uh, you may disagree, but if we could just kind of, given that for just a moment, would you put more of the responsibility for that on the script or on and the way they decided to do it, 
or on Peter Sellers leaving? In other words, would it have been that much better if he'd stuck around till the end? I think it's actually more on the first. I think they were overambitious in what they tried to do in terms in having too many cooks. Um, and the fact that they ended up having so many directors, which I sort of understand why they tried to do it, but even then there was not one overarching director or one person who owned the movie from a artistic, creative point of view. I think they needed somebody to be the main... You, we mentioned the Quentin Tarantino one earlier. That was done, but it was still a Quentin Tarantino thing. Mm. And he had overall artistic, creative license over it. I think what they needed was somebody to do that because in doing this, they lost control of what they were trying to do um, in the fact that they had multiple directors doing their own bit. And then that led to each of the major stars getting too much control, I think. Um, so, you know, I think if, if this had been, if you could have sort of carved off the... if. I think if like Val Guest and David Niven and Ursula Andress had gone off to do a Austin Powers type spoof with Val Guest as the sole director, I think that could have been cool. If somebody else had gone off with Peter Sellers to do a more straight type James Bond type movie, that might have worked as well. But trying to push everything together and have no one person have overall creative control, I think just created the mess. Um, yeah. And I don't, don't I, the fact that it. Sellers was going through whatever the hell he was going through and was acting the way he was at the time certainly did not help. And then having to sort of, you know, there's, there's been movies before where actors have got fired or replaced and they've managed to remake them or, you know, fairly recently the one where, you know, Kevin Spacey was replaced by Christopher Plummer. They right. managed to pull that together and still get a movie out. Um, or so when they died, there's actually an excuse, you know, like yeah, a Brainstorm. So, yeah. So there are ways of doing it. I, I think this was just a, a perfect storm of bad, th- uncontrollable things happening. Um, and they still had a movie to put out. But having said that, it made $41 million on its $12 million um, investment. So it made money. It was a hit. Yeah. Um, and it can, so, um, and it, I think it is very much a, an interesting lens on the time, on people trying to do things and I think it's actually an also interesting lens on what Bond, where Bond stood in pop culture at the time, that you could put, do something like this, put it out, and people would still go to see it because it was Bond. And we're still talking about it because it's Bond. Um, like I said, I think this is a movie that should, should be studied um, for, for many, many reasons. The, um, the, way that a, the way that somebody coming down with Ebola and AIDS and COVID-19 all at the same time should be studied. Should be studied. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. This is what I, can happen if you're not careful, people. Don't I, look away. Well, you're going to want to look away, but don't look away. There's a lot to learn from this movie, and I, you said it. In parts, it looks beautiful. I think there are some yeah. great ideas. There's, there's the, actually, some of the comedy actually really works. I think some of it is, is really cool. It's got great music. Um, all the pieces are there. It's like somebody's taken a Lego set of all these great pieces that, if you put together, makes the Batmobile. Yeah. And they've thrown it, thrown them in the air, and they've come down, and they've just, <laughs> I, I, God knows what they've put together instead. You know, it just. Um, <laughs> The bricks are being just put together in the wrong order. Um, yeah, they are. Yeah. So, but, yeah. How, so, could, how could something with so many things right be so wrong, I think, is my question. That's my big question. My big takeaway from this is how can you it's, – it's like if you brought in all the best NFL players and the best NFL coach and you let them play in their home stadium and somehow they got blown out by Louisiana Monroe 70 to nothing. And you're like, how could you put all those people together – and give them 
you know, what they needed, and they still produced this. And it's just, uh, it's, I, don't, I don't. What what would be what would be the first thing you would take out to try to help this? Woody Allen would that be it? Was was he a positive? Yeah, well, I, don't, I, I don't like Woody Allen anyway, um, so that doesn't help. But personally, um, I've never found him amusing at all, um, irrespective of other things around him as a character, mm. uh, as a person. Um, I just yeah. never found him amusing as a character. Uh, I, I think he's so out of place here. Yeah. Um, and his, his brand of humor just does not fit with everything else that we're trying to do. I think David Niven, Ursula Andress dynamic works. I think the Ursula Andress Peter Sellers dynamic works. Um, mm-hmm. I actually think Orson Welles is as the heaviest schmerz <laughs> agent. I thought that was a lovely way they put that um, <laughs> in the trailer. Um, could have been a pretty good Le Chief actually given something to do other than sit there and do his magic tricks. Do magic tricks. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think, like you said, uh, yes, I would it, I would probably cut Woody Allen out of this if I was editing it together, but, you know, obviously contractual reasons they couldn't. Um, I think he did, his storyline detracts. Away. So, yeah, that would probably be my first cut um, and then figure out a way of doing something at the end which isn't but all holes barred every, you know. Yeah. Um, that... That thing. seemed to be Hollywood's answer to big movies that were going wrong back then. Is like, if you get to the last twenty minutes and in the, and the wheels are coming off, you don't try to fix it. You just embrace it and go utterly gonzo. You know, you yeah. You just, just throw in throw a music, everything in there. Throw every <laughs> yes. You just have a showstopper musical number and you blow everything up and you did. That was their answer kind of back then, and it, it it's funny and um. I think the one thing that really worked for me in the whole movie and gave me a little hope at the beginning, I thought that David Niven, he's not James Bond, but I thought he could have been a good M. But I thought yeah. that I thought that as Sir James the retired agent, which was never really explained that this was supposed to happen years later than the other movies or something, but when there'd only been like three. But I thought I thought David Niven as a as a secret agent guy, that kind of works because he has a lot of Roger Moore qualities that that can work for this. Yeah, you know he yeah. he's well, he's closer they, to Roger Moore than of, the others. They sort of did explain it because they did the whole thing. He retired after Matahari got shot, and he yeah, and then he makes the fact that basically you gave my name and number to that oversexed. What was the <laughs> phrase he used? I think I did take a note of it. But basically, it has a dig at Sean Connery. Yes, they oh, have yeah. a, a couple of references to Sean Connery yeah, that I thought were yeah, funny. Yeah, you gave it to that sexual acrobat who leaves be, <laughs> leaves a trail of beautiful dead women behind him. <laughs> that and was good. The, bound, the, bounder, the bounder to who you gave my name and number. So um, they, yeah. they sort of do sort of set that up that the movies are the Connery movie Bond is his successor who they gave his name and number to. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Did you know also there, they, at one point they briefly showed the room where they were coloring women gold? Gold, yeah, the end, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that so, was, that was. I mean, uh, at that uh, point, then, it didn't surprise me. Yeah, and then there's that bit about all our agents are being killed, and he says, I can only hope that my successor is is, is among them, and they're like, oh, no, he's off doing TV. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so, it, it's yeah, there's lots of little digs around that. So, um, I, I was just interested to get your take. Like I say, I've watched this movie... So we were talking on Twitter about how often you've, people have seen this movie. Yeah. I I will say, you know, I've probably watched this movie at least a dozen times. Um, Good grief. So, why, man? Why? <laughs> I, I just find something different in it every time I watch it. The more I know about the backstory, the more I see things, the more I sort of pull things. 
I think it has great music. I think it looks good. Um, I think there's a couple of, like I say, there's a, two or three movies in here that are all mushed together. The one thing I can't do, and I often will say, is I do turn it off before it gets to that big scene end scene in the casino. I, 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 I quite like it, and I can enjoy it up to the UFO landing in Trafalgar Square. <laughs> <laughs> the things we haven't even mentioned are making my eyes pop out right and now. And that's probably where I, I sometimes I will watch it and I'll stop it at that point and I'm like pretend the rest of it didn't happen, but I can live with it up to that point. So <laughs> I, I like the railing that's a gun. Like Niven leans up against the railing and pushes a button, and the railing in the casino starts oh, yeah, shooting people. Oh yeah, the casino people. becomes a gun, and the, or the roulette wheel that takes off and takes off and flies it. around. And I'm just, yeah, yeah. Oh, sweet yeah. Jesus. So, okay, if you and Jared ever but, show up at my house with this on Blu-ray, bring a bottle of tequila because that's the only way it's going to happen. <laughs> that's the only so, way. So yeah, I have it on DVD. I do watch it. I would say probably every two or three years, I'll throw it on and, and watch it up until the UFO arrives, and then I'm. <laughs> <laughs> wow when they started mortaring james bond's house i'm like okay this is not going well this is this is already going <laughs> off the rails and we're in the first act here so all right so i think we've probably done this one to death um mm. so all right i i guess unless, um, you've, unless you've got any any final words that you want to add to uh, yeah no to i i can't imagine ever watching this again like i said the only way that's the only way i will ever watch this last one again is if you bring me a bottle of tequila when you bring it over <laughs> other than that it's right. i don't think it's ever going to get watched again but i could see myself watching the 54 one again down the road once i've kind of you know once it's been a while because that one really was enjoyable. So I, I guess my takeaway from you f- twisting my arm and making me watch these two that I thought were both going to be horrible is it was worth it to suffer through how long? I guess the 1967 one is about seven and a half hours long, right? It certainly felt <laughs> it felt seven and a half hours long. I thought I'd been tortured long enough, and I checked the time, and it wasn't even halfway yet. And I tweeted something about how weird it was, and you said, oh, you're not even to the weird part yet. And I'm like, oh, good God. I'm not even to the weird part yet. Oh, my goodness. So, But even though this movie was seven and a half hours of torture, it was worth sitting through that, I guess, to discover that I had a false impression about the other one, and I'm glad I watched the other one. I'm just actually looking up to see what the runtime actually was. Oh, it's like two hours and and 11 minutes, I think. It's it's at least as long as a... It's 131 minutes, so it's just over two hours. Two hours and 11 minutes. Yeah, it's... it's, um, it's as long as any Bond movie, any regular one, yeah. Yeah. And feels yeah. And about I will three say, times it, as long. That, that, that last part does really drag. Um, but uh, I am, which for something that's so frantic, it's weird to say it drags. But yeah, for me, that's when it starts to drag. <laughs> I told my so, wife, there's eight minutes to go. And then like we're standing there and I'm like, I, it's been 30 minutes, hadn't it? She's like, no, it's been about six. I'm like, it's got to have been 30 minutes. <laughs> there's no way it's been six minutes. It's in, it should be over by now. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I would highly recommend, if you have not seen either of these, I would highly recommend that, yes, you definitely go and check out the 54 one. If you've got a strong constitution and you've had a couple of drinks inside you and you've never seen the 67 one, I would actually recommend that you watch it so you know what people are talking about. Just so you know. Yeah. I am glad Uh, I can say I've seen it. I would say that anybody who says they're a serious Bond fan and a serious Bond aficionado, you should watch it at least once just so you know what people are talking about. That's what I'm saying. and if you're insane like me, maybe watch every couple of years, learn the backstory, and you will start to see things in the movie and appreciate them and, um, and find the point that you want to turn it off with. 
<laughs> turn it off and not watch the rest of it. But I would recommend that you do invest 131 minutes of your time at some point. Sit For down. Me, in the future, have a, have that's... A, have a strong drink. <laughs> For me, that'll be right after the lion roars at the very beginning. <laughs> yeah. so, okay, I, we're done. It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah, you're right. I am glad I can say I've seen it. I would. It's better now than it's better for me to know it's bad than just to say it's bad because I heard it's bad. And so, yeah, for me, yeah. for me. All right, all right. Well, I because, guess we'll to, to, your, to your point. The downside of that is, uh, and I was with you for many, many years. I avoided watching the '54 one because people said it was bad, and it's not. It's actually really no. good. No, exactly. So, yeah. Again, it depends yeah. on what your mindset is going in. Just go in knowing it's like a, it's filmed like on a soundstage. It's basically like a live studio audience play, basically, and yeah. it's uh, it's remarkable. So, yeah. So right. watch the fifty four. Go watch the fifty four one. Appreciate it for what it is. Go watch the sixty seven one just from a historical artifact point of view. <laughs> I think that's fair. <sighs> we made it. We made it through it. it wow. All right. All right. Yes. And just be thankful I am not going to make you watch Operation Kid Brother. <laughs> no, thank Okay, I am very grateful at this point. I am very, very grateful. <laughs> Do you know what that one is? It's the This is brother plays him and yeah. Yeah, yeah. Connery's it's about bro- the same Connery. sort of time, but it's with Neil Connery because oh, they couldn't get Sean Connery. I think I might have actually seen that ages ago, back when I was a kid, and it was oh, well. pretty bad. If anybody's so. interested, it, it's actually on YouTube. Just put uh, Operation Kid Brother into YouTube. <laughs> These are things that people put on YouTube and they're like, yeah, should we sue them over? Ah, no, just leave it up there. Nobody's going to care. <laughs> so you said your, your your wife said, what the hell was that when you were watching Casino Royal? That was Jill's reaction when I put Operation Kid Brother on. Watch it one evening. <laughs> there you go. Okay, though. All right. I think so that, what are we going to go do next? What are we going to do next? Uh, what's what's left? That we, We've covered all the bonds now, haven't we? Except for 25. We have indeed, yeah. Yeah. Wow, we made yeah. it. We made it to the end. Um, I guess we need to do, we're talking about doing some Connery movies that are not Bond and some Roger Moore, maybe Pierce Brosnan movies that are not Bond. Uh, I guess Daniel Craig even. So I guess if we go chronologically, we should start with Connery. So maybe we should do uh, one or two Connery Bond-like movies next. What do you think? Sounds good. And maybe a little retrospective on each of their non-Bond careers and the, the highs and lows. There Sounds you go. Good. So All right. We'll let's, do it. We'll do a, a, I guess next time we'll do a, a look at uh, Sean Connery's non-Bond career. I'm down. All right. Well. Sounds good. Van and Alan will return, and we will see you all down the road. Thanks a lot, Alan. Thanks, Van. That was a fun one. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment Production.